Coming up on Zone 1 Digest, Ian Hawkins talks about what he considers the funniest things ever. In the late 50s and early 60s when London started to swing and suddenly they're going, but why isn't it swinging for me? <laughs> Viv Oyolu seeks inspirational advice from Justine Solomons. So um, what I want to do is to champion good writing, irrelevant of how it's been published. Anna Wing whips the Zone 1 team into shape with her fitness feature. So Jamie, how do you think you did? I think it's fair to say that I demolished Dawn. <laughs> in, in, what, in what area? And community profile talk about chocolate and why sometimes fair trade isn't fair enough. The problem with fair trade certified is it doesn't generally trickle down um, to, the, to the actual laborers in the farm. Um, it really only scratches the surface because it's a very small premium. All this and assumedly more coming up on Zone 1 Digest. This is Zone 1 Radio. Hello listeners, I'm Stuart Hardy, a furry-faced goblin of Zone 1 Radio's office, and I've managed to cut and paste another edition of Zone 1 Digest together, bringing you the best of Zone 1 Radio, the Mayor of London-funded community radio station for Central London. Don't forget, you can actually take a little piece of Zone 1 Radio home with you on the Zone 1 Digest podcast on iTunes, because we're just that generous. To begin with, we have an ancient relic of Zone 1's history that's been dug up and given a makeover. This is the brand new London Life, the show all about people who live and work in London and make it the culturally diverse place that it is. And in this first edition, they have a chat with comedian and presenter Ian Hawkins in London Life's soon-to-be regular My Funniest Things slot. Over to you, London Life. I'm with the star of what Zone One Radio is, London Life. Yes, the Ian Hawkins Show. The Ian Hawkins. entirely by Ian Hawkins. Written by Ian Hawkins. <laughs> Produced, directed, conceived, scripted by. Theme tune. Theme tune by. <laughs> with additional material by uh, 40 other people. <laughs> yeah. So this feature is called My Funniest Things. I know, and solipsistically I'm doing my own funniest things before I do anybody else's. So how does this feature work? You've done this before, haven't you? Well, what happens I sit in your seat and I say, well, comedian, what are the things that have made you laugh and that got you into comedy? And it's like the Desert Island Discs, but obviously for legal reasons, not, <laughs> not for comedy. Uh, so, what, what sort of influences uh, have been brought about on the way that I write comedy? And the first one, I guess, it's unavoidable, uh, is Tony Hancock. Um, I was in hospital, and I, was, I used to have to stay very still in hospital, and got incredibly bored. And I always had stories on tape, and books on tape, and other things on tape. And gradually, we sort of ran out of stuff to give me that was age appropriate. And I started getting things like um, Round the Horn and Tony Hancock. And so Tony Hancock, I, I, I was receiving a blood transfusion when I heard The Blood Donor by Tony Hancock. Uh, so, which must make me some kind of unique case, I think. Um, and so, that I've always liked the idea of Tony Hancock, this person that is aware that the world is going on and things are happening and he's not really a part of it. But I can see it all just beyond his front door and desperately wants to be part of it and sort of is always left behind. And it's a very appealing character because I think it appealed to lots of people in the late 50s and early 60s when London started to swing and suddenly they're going, but why isn't it swinging for me? <laughs> Well, he's, he's one of the most famous, like, British comedians of his time, isn't he? Probably the most famous. 
um, I think it was the first performer to get paid more than a thousand pounds at a show, which considering it's 1959, 1960, is, is going at some. Um, <laughs> number two, um, I, I think the second one I'm going to do is um, Monty Python's Life of Brian. Now, when did you first see Life of Brian? Uh, I think I was probably about... I remember seeing a scene, because I had a Latin teacher. Yeah. Very middle-class. Romanes de Tejas, Thomas. Romans that people, they go to the house. <laughs> yeah, she showed me that uh, as, I don't know, as a way of showing us that Latin was cool. Okay. Latin's not cool, but... <laughs> no, um, Life of Brian, of course, uh, I'm not going to say it's pre, pre-videotape, because it's not, but it's not... It kind of... You, you couldn't get films when I was growing up in the way that you can now. You kind of had to rely on your local video store. And this must have been early 90s. Uh, I, having never seen the film, but knowing all about the hype around it, weirdly, uh, that Life of Brown was being shown as part of a, a season on Channel 4 called The Band Season. And they had Brimstone and Treacle, they had various other bits and bobs, but it was always on quite late at night. And I remember being attached to some kind of youth club and wanting to leave early, and they said, why are you leaving early? And I said, oh, because Life of Brown's on tonight. And they said, you shouldn't watch that film. And it was... The first time that I'd actually come across somebody saying, you can't watch this, you can't read that, you can't see that. Uh, and I was like, yeah, I'm completely taken aback. I said, why not? They said, it's blasphemous. So I was like, so what? <laughs> So the, the film is black. Okay, well, in that case, I definitely want to see it because I'd like to know what what blasphemy looks like, and I'll go and watch it. And um, I didn't realise it because I was quite naive. I didn't realise the bloke that was running the club was a, I think, Methodist or possibly a Baptist. Obviously, he didn't lay on too thick, otherwise I'd know exactly what he was. But the the punishment is, I went home and I watched it, and I thought, oh, this is fine. This is a blasphemous. This is merely sacrilegious, which is a completely different thing. And you know, enjoyed it, obviously a very funny film. And so the next week I said, I said, I'm really interested why this guy would find it blasphemous. And I said to him, which part of it did you think was particularly, you know, particularly stuck in your crawl? Which bit did you not think was uh, was appropriate or, you know, was blasphemous? And he had to admit that he hadn't seen it. And then uh, I think that sort of really galvanised me to think, well, if you haven't seen it, you can't, you know, you can't say that it's something that it's not, and you can't stop other people from watching. You're listening to Zone One Digest, one man stealing clips from other shows and passing them off as his own. Just kidding, all attribution to the people who did the work is given. Next up is something I really should have included in last week's edition, but didn't because I'd lost the email. I really don't have a good excuse there. Relatively new to Zone 1 Radio is Viv Oyelu, who presents Dream Corner, in-depth interviews and profiles of female leaders in all areas of business. In this opening edition, Viv had a chat with Justine Solomons, founder of Bite the Book. Get it? A writing and publishing collective connecting quality writers with the digital age. So while I send an email profusely apologising for my oversight to Viv, you can have a listen to Dream Corner. So, over to you, Viv. Hi, welcome to Dream Corner. This is Viv Oyolu, and I'm here with the lovely Justine Solomons. Hi, Justine. Hello, Viv. Thank you for inviting me to this. Oh, I've just been going on and on about her place. It's really, really lovely. Thanks for having me here. And uh, thanks for agreeing to this 
to this book to to do this uh, uh, interview. And um, Justin is the founder of Bites the Book, and um, what it does is uh, she she actually brings together writers, publishers, and editors. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. So um, it's a hub. It's a writers' collective, um, and. Uh, maybe if the term hub publishing might help you understand it better. Okay. So um, what I want to do is to champion good writing, irrelevant of how it's been published. So we have people within our network that have been published traditionally and people within our network that self-publish. Um, we also have people within the network who are publishers or provide services to writers. Okay. Um, and I also connect with technical people. And, and hence the term bite the book. Okay. So what kind of technical people? Um, well, we have people that provide technical services to writers and publishers. Um, that can help with ebook conversion. Oh, okay, of that, course. That can, that can um, build apps for people that can do the... the, the, the other technical services, distribution, other di- technical services um, that you require within that that network i mean it my background is in technology i work for so i worked for an it company for nine years and um i ran their sales team so i'm not a developer but i i was someone who helped persuade people to use technical resource and um so although i don't have that background i i understand the way that it's spoken about and when I started getting involved in this, I realised how little the publishers knew about technical things. Oh. And so so I thought that it would make sense to bring those people together. Um, the, the publishing industry is in is in flux at the moment. So on radio. The publishers increasingly are looking... Because whether you publish, self-publish, or you go to publish, it's all about risk. So who, who's taking the risk? So if you self-publish, you're taking all the risk. You're doing the financial aspects. Of mm. your, your, yes. Your, 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 whereas a publisher might take a risk on you, and that's when they give you the advance, and they give you the advance, yeah. or, or, or they just decide to, to split the profits with you. But they'll put their energies into it and their mm. team within it, and they're, and they're going to choose people that have an interesting voice. Um, increasingly, they'll they'll pick people that have polished, that can write well, that have a polished manuscript. So there won't be have to be too much editing. Someone they can work well with. So personality comes person, in. Oh, absolutely. And someone, yeah. and someone that they, you know, it might not be, uh, often I speak to agents and publishers and they say, I'm not sure that this is going to be their big book, but I like them and I can see that they're going to have a good career. So it's, it's about working with someone through their career mm. and seeing, seeing that there is a, a potential sure. in that person. Yeah. Um, another thing that they're looking for is, is writers that have a platform already. So if you've already got... Twitter following, if you you know, if you Love. have a ra- if you have a radio show, if you have, <laughs> but if you if you have something, if you're already established in, established in the in the in the niche, you're, yeah, yeah, you're already yeah, yeah. Okay. So so if you have a name for yourself, if you have, um, if you're an interesting voice in that sense, that people mm. people are already starting to, to look to you. If you've self-published and you've and you've shown that you've had good sales through self-publishing, then an established publisher will pick you up. You're listening to Zone One Digest, the best of the Mayor of London-funded community radio station. Yeah, exactly. How awesome is that? You were just listening to Viv Oyelu on Dream Corner, profiling female leaders in all areas of business. 
And next up, we have a new section added to Zone One's sports show in the zone that new presenter Hannah Wing has dubbed Get In Shape, where each week Hannah takes some of our members of staff and tortured, sorry, instructs them with an intensive fitness regime. In this edition, she put Jamie Leslie and Dawn Skelton head to head. So let's go and have a good old laugh at their shame. And when I say their shame, what I actually mean is Jamie's shame. Over to you in the zone. This is Zone One Radio. So, hello, welcome to Zone One Radio. Hi. Um, what are you about to put young Dawn and young Jamie through here? Um, we're going to do a series of tests to test their fitness. And what are our aims and objectives? Just for this week is to literally measure their current fitness, see how well they do, and then we will give them some exercises and see how they improve for the coming weeks. Zone One Radio. Hi, Jamie. Hello, Miss. Can I say, this is PE, isn't it? It does feel like PE. We're sat on the floor sat and everything. Sat cross-legged on the floor. Brilliant. Um, how are you feeling? Um, what's the best word? With tre- trepidation. <laughs> what do you think your performance will be like compared to Dawn's? What do you think oh, your performance oh, way, will be like? Oh, way, way better. I'm slaughter. Say that again. I'm going to destroy her. Oh! He's going to destroy her. Witness the fitness. Dawn is extra fit. She's like much yoga, so we'll see. I I can't can't remember the last time I did yoga, actually. You're saying that she's not even going to do proper push-ups. She's going to do woman push-ups. She can do proper ones if she likes. We'll see. See how she's feeling. Um, So you think that Dawn's going to give the poorest performance? Yeah. There's only two of us here. I know. There is today, but we'll have more next week. Okay, so Dawn, okay. so what do you think you might excel in today? Um, we'll see. Time will tell. So You're having a lot of confidence there, Dawn. I'm not going to fall. Oh, I'm going to be fantastic. Your, yeah. where's I where's am amazing. Spirit? Yeah, Jamie said he's going to crush you. Yeah, right. So what do you think your performance will be like compared to Jamie's? Um, I don't know. Oh my goodness, he does actually have muscles. Okay. Well, let's um, crack on and see. Yeah. Let's see. This is going to be interesting. Zone One Radio. What we're going to do is we're going to do some shuttles. So you've got a minute to run from this end to that end. You need to touch the floor each end. And one at a time, Dawn's going to count for you first. Where's there the and back is one. So here to the, the pool. <laughs> like a gazelle. There's not, not really a sense of urgency there. <laughs> And I love that Jamie's legs are so long that it takes him three strides. <laughs> three. Come on, Jamie. You're supposed to be wiping the floor with him. Four. Sorry, I should cheat and just say four again. Yeah, no cheating, Dawn. <laughs> Halfway, come on. Let's Sorry, make it to ten. Seconds. Keep breathing. <laughs> <laughs> It's only been 30 seconds. You've got six or seven. You're supposed to be counting. Song one radio. Have a deep breath. In through the nose, out through the mouth. You just got beaten by a girl. And I've got it on camera and on tape. And it only took you three strides. I swear to God that I did. I got more than nine. No, you didn't. didn't. You definitely didn't. Are you sure I didn't lose count at one point? I don't know. I don't think so. Someone radio. One. Oh, Dawn got 29. How many did Jamie get? 26 and 29. Write it down, everybody. Well done. I thought he had just been doing nice, regular kickups. Yeah, but they're easier, I think. 
So Jamie, how do you think you did? I think it's fair to say that I demolished Dawn. <laughs> in in what in, in what area? In the push-up area. I'm not. Oh, I was gonna push say. Push-up area. We had five five exercises. Oh, I, I beat her in the one that count. <laughs> yeah, it would have been a bit sad if, if, if I'd beaten you as at press-ups, being as a well as everything yeah. else. <laughs> okay. So here's the plan for next week. We're going to do the same again next week. We're going to measure your fitness and see if you've improved. So the only way you're going to improve is if you go home and practice, unfortunately. So it's not just like a five-minute thing here. You don't have to, but if you don't, when you come back next week, you will be humiliated. <laughs> again, why are you humiliated? <laughs> so if you work on this, you'll see some improvement over the next few weeks. So I've written down a few things. I'll let you take them away. But just so the listeners are clear... So we've got uh, the running. What I would suggest, because both of you... No, Dawn did pretty well on the running, actually. But for anybody, really, I'd suggest possibly trying to do at least one, one run over the next week, if not two, maybe a 20-minute run, or some sort of endurance, even if it's walking to work instead of getting the bus. They are looking at me with blank stares. No, 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 no. Taken. <laughs> Point Good. taken. Okay, so at least one, if not twice... Um, a 20 minute run This is Someone Radio That's about all we have time for on this edition of Zone 1 Digest, the best of the Mayor of London funded community radio station and that was In The Zone's new Get In Shape segment and unfortunately that's all we've got time for at the moment but we have just enough time to squeeze in, no pun intended Community Profile presents the issues of chocolate, a special edition covering the ways in which chocolate is made and sold in the developing world and why in some cases you can get fairer than fair trade Weird thought I know Anyway, you have listened to that, and I'm going to go and binge on Maltesers and watch TV. Make sure to catch up with all of Zone 1 Radio's great content and take some of it home with you on the Zone 1 Digest podcast on iTunes. So over to you, Community Profile, and see you next time. Mott Green is one of the founders of the Granada Chocolate Company, which aims to create a safer and fairer working environment for chocolate farmers in the cocoa trade in South America. We set Angel Dutt to find out more. I'm Mott Green, uh, founder and director of the Grenada Chocolate Company. So Mott, you're a chocolatier and founder of the Grenada Chocolate Company. I'd love to know how it all started. Well, um, I had been living in Grenada on and off for about 11 years um, from the time in my early 20s. Um, really just um, experimenting with growing my own food and living in the woods I was surrounded by cocoa trees in my bamboo house where I lived, and I fell in love with um, drinking cocoa in a very simple concoction that I learned to do there um, from the fresh bean, where you sort of roast it, in the, roast it on your little stove, and then you, you, you grind it coarsely, and you make a drink out of it. And over these 10 years, I started to notice, of course, that my cocoa farmer friends um, were really complaining that they weren't getting enough money for their cocoa beans at all. In fact, most of them were sort of abandoning their cocoa farms. And then looking into the whole sort of world of cocoa, I, I, I understood what an exploitive crop it is, like so many commodity crops um, all over. So I developed this idea. I started to wonder, why don't cocoa farmers make chocolate bars, you know, right on the cocoa farm? And, well, looked into it and found that no one else had ever seemed to have done that. And, indeed, it's challenging, which is part of why. <laughs> 
Now, how does your operation run as the Grenada Chocolate Company in terms of the idea of fair trade? Well, um, I feel that we're just about the most um, ethically produced chocolate in the world um, in that I think we remain the only cocoa farmer owned um, and chocolate maker owned from the very same community making chocolate right there in that community so there's nothing um, more ideal that I could imagine than that now fair trade certified chocolate is a you know is a movement to try to um, you know try to certify chocolate bars as being as being more ethical personally I don't think that fair trade certified chocolate really helps too much um, it's a movement in the right direction for sure it's certainly a good thing that the consumer is interested in buying fair trade products. Um, the consumer wants to do the right thing uh, more than before, doesn't want to buy exploitive chocolate. But the problem with fair trade certified is it doesn't generally trickle down um, to, the, to the actual laborers in the farm. Um, it really only scratches the surface because it's a very small premium. And as a matter of fact, the kind of cocoa beans in Grenada, places like Grenada and Trinidad and Venezuela and um, these t type of places, have very, very good cocoa beans, very special cocoa beans. Only 4% of the world is what they call finer flavored cocoa. And this cocoa has a much higher value on the, on the international market than the regular commodity cocoa, which is about 95 or 96% of the cocoa in the world, mostly from West Africa. So the fair trade certified chocolate really applies more if it, if it applies, if, if it's effective at all, but it would apply more to the kind of high volume chocolates, Cadbury's and, you know, this and that. Um, whereas the really fine chocolates being made with really fine cocoa, the cocoa beans for those chocolates um, cost much more than the fair trade prices. So it's really a whole separate world than fair trade. And um, we're just um, not certified in any way for that. We're certified for being organically produced, no chemicals and etc. But um, but I don't think there is yet a, a, a certification for cocoa that really means anything re regarding the ethics. So instead, we, we do what we do, and, we just, have, and we, just, we just want the world to know that. So in a way, you are beyond fair trade. You are a hybrid that's not for the mass market. That's right. I mean, we're definitely fairer than fair trade. Um, and, you know, we're also after making an extremely high-quality chocolate because we have a very special cocoa bean in Grenada. It's really one of the best in the world, um, really thought that way all over Europe. So, so we make this, this fantastically delicious chocolate, um, and um, I think it's, you know, it's about the most eth ethically produced chocolate, too.